You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Jimmy Turner, and you're listening to the Earn and Invest Podcast. Burnout started for me on a lonely evening in the ICU in training as I unexpectedly lost a patient and had to confront my own demons surrounding basic competence. These fears were multiplied years later as an attending physician as I saw my autonomy erode under an avalanche of regulations, administrators, and electronic medical records. I no longer felt the connections to my fellow healthcare workers. I felt that I no longer belonged in the hospitals, clinics, or nursing homes. It was the perfect setup for burnout. My solution, based on a deeper contemplation of purpose and identity that no longer seemed to align with my career, was to use good financial planning to escape, which successfully extracted me from a toxic work environment, but did little to assuage the disordered, unhealthy, and often counterproductive self-narrative that landed me there in the first place. My guest, Jimmy Turner, the physician philosopher, would say that ultimately I needed to learn how to self-determine. Today, we talk burnout. Jimmy and I are physicians, so our discussion may center on healthcare, but the advice is universal for any profession, service, or career. Jimmy Turner is a practicing anesthesiologist and life, career, and money coach for doctors who are burned out and want work-life balance. He is the creator of the Physician Philosopher Platform and Podcast. His forthcoming book, Determined How Burned Out Doctors Can Thrive in a Broken Medical System, will be out this summer. Jimmy Turner, welcome back to Earn and Invest. Let's jump right in. Tell us about your first anxiety attack. Oh, yeah, that's a good story. So, yeah, thanks for having me on the show. I'm super excited about this. You know, as listeners may be aware, the longtime listeners for your show, like this was like literally my first podcast ever. But yeah, the the anxiety attack. So I'm a big golfer and I had a lot of stuff going on in the background and I was kind of trying to piece it together. You know, I had some symptoms kind of here and there. But, you know, yeah, I was, I was in the middle of kind of burning out in medicine and I was looking forward to this day on the golf course. My buddy Mike and I are going to be playing at the country club where we're members. Yeah, we're staying on the second hole of this golf course and we are in the middle of the fairway. We're about to hit our second shots in, you know, to the green and we hear this ball, like, you know, get hit from a tee behind us. And I turn around like just in time to see this like white blur fly by my face going hundred miles an hour. It was really interesting because, you know, that, that's a big no, no in golf. I mean, you don't, you don't hit golf shots when someone's down, I mean, down the you know range, if you will. And literally within sight, like eyesight, it wasn't like a blind tee shot. And so 
all of a sudden, like my heart was in my chest, you know, like my throat, I was starting to have palpitations, like my hands were shaking. I really couldn't regulate my emotions. And so I turned to Mike and I said, Hey Mike, like you know, when they come down here, you know, cause we were going to kind of hash it out with the, the guys that decided to hit into us and say, Hey, you know what, what's going on? Like, did you not see us? Like what happened? And I told Mike, I said, Mike, you're gonna have to handle this. I can't, I can't control my emotions right now. So that was the, the first time in my life I'd ever experienced a full-on panic attack. And I knew exactly what it was when it happened. I'm a physician. You know, I, I practice anesthesia. I help you know, deal with people's anxiety all the time and give them medications to help decrease that when they're preparing for procedures. And uh, I couldn't control it. Like it, it was off the charts, like, you know, worst anxiety I'd ever experienced in my life. Like I just wanted to literally, it was like fight or flight on steroids. Yeah, I'm, I'm sitting there and, and it dawned on me, all these things in the background that had been going on started to kind of make sense that there was more to this anxiety attack than, than just, you know, this panic attack being a random act or coincidence. Tell us more about that. What in your life led up to this incredibly vulnerable moment. It almost sounds like PTSD, right? It almost sounds like you were having this intense reaction that wasn't about the ball itself, which was annoying. And you said, boy, I could have really been hurt by that. But there was more going on. What was happening in the background? You know, the first few years of my career, I, you know, I really was a a go-getter and still am. It's kind of the, the way that I'm wired. And so I've always been, you know, heavy in, in content production, whether it's in the, in the business or writing papers, teaching, that sort of thing. And I didn't really know why I was wired that way for a long time. And, and now that I'm looking back, you know, I understand a little more about my person, a lot more about my personality. But for me, I was always kind of constantly achieving in order to, you know, actualize any self-worth that I had because I'm an, you know, an external achievement, achievement junkie. You know, I kind of needed people's external recognition. And so I was working really hard in medicine. I was an academic, so I was teaching. I was, you know, doing clinical work. I was working 80, you know, 60, 70 hours a week. I was working 1.2 FTE or 120% of, you know, a normal job. And a normal job in medicine, the average hours is, you know, that's 60, right? So 120% of that. And yeah, so I was working really hard and I started getting really angry at work. I started getting really angry at home. I started having trouble sleeping at night. You know, I'd wake up three, four, five times a night. I was not sleeping through the middle of the night. And I actually remember being at a dinner with a friend of mine who invited me to meet his new girlfriend. And there's probably, I don't know, eight or 10 of us there. And I was, I was sitting at this dinner table and like, I'm, I'm like soaking through my shirt. I'm sweating so badly. And I'm like looking around for the thermostat. I'm like, man, like, is this guy like, you know, tightwad? Like you can't, you know, turn the air conditioner on. And I'm looking around at everyone at the t- table and I'm the only one who's sweating, like, like profusely sweating. And so like, as I look back on all these events, like when I had the panic attack, I was like, okay, something's wrong. I don't know what it is, but something's wrong. And so I, I went and saw my, my family practice doc and she you know, was very astute and put it all together. And she's like, I think we should check your thyroid. And you know, lo and behold, my TSH is undetectable. I have Graves disease, which is an autoimmune disorder that attacks your thyroid. So basically made my thyroid hyperactive. And so I was, I was having all of these you know, tremors and sweats and anxiety and you know, all that stuff and the, the anger that would come out from that. And I at first kind of was really excited actually about getting diagnosed with Graves disease because like finally like there's an exam you know an answer for this burnout that I'd been experiencing in medicine and the burnout had gotten so bad early in my career that I was excited to get a medical diagnosis because it gave me a reason for why I was struggling so badly and you know I should be happy I'm a doctor I'm making good money I'm married to a saint I got three kids they're healthy I've got a life that people dream of and I was miserable. And so, yeah, I got diagnosed with Graves disease and come to find out that that's what was going on in the background. But yeah, it turns out that 
that got treated. I, I got euthyroid. My endocrinologist kind of you know fixed all that stuff, and my burnout didn't go away. And so that that rescue that I thought was going to happen with the Graves disease possibly being the impetus for all these struggles ended up not being not coming to fruition. We talk about burnout a lot in the medical world, but I think sometimes in the rest of the world, we use that term, but I don't know if we know what it means exactly. Is there a classic definition of what burnout actually is? Yeah. So, so Frudenberger, you know, originally described burnout in the 1980s and it's kind of composed of three different components. So one is emotional exhaustion. They used to actually call this, you know, something different, but the, the, way, the words now that are used are emotional exhaustion, which means that you are you know, kind of apathetic in a way, like you, you've gone through a lot of things and like, you just don't care. Like, you, you know, and as a doctor, this presents in kind of very troubling ways where like, you just don't care what happens to you or to other people. And then you've got the depersonalization aspect. That's the second piece of it, which is where you kind of start to treat your colleagues, your peers, you know, your customers and in, in medicine, your patients as kind of inanimate objects. Like they're, they're not human beings. You don't have empathy for them. You compartmentalize your interactions with them in order to deal with the things that are going on. And the third thing is a lack of accomplishment. So despite your you know, massive amounts of success that you might've created in your life, these objective things that you can, can cling to and say that you've accomplished, you'll still feel like you haven't accomplished much. And so it's the emotional exhaustion, that depersonalization and the lack of accomplishment. That's the triad that forms what Frudenberger classically described as, as burnout. We love to claim burnout for ourselves in the doctor and nurse world. When Ferdenberger first described it, was he talking about medical professionals? And if so, generally, when we're talking about today, burnout's something that's pretty widespread throughout professions, isn't it? Yeah, no, I think burnout, it, it is very generalizable. And, and actually, you know, it's really interesting because having these conversations and, and writing this book about burnout, it, it's pretty obvious to me at this point why or that I should say that a lot of people really relate to this concept and it is not specific to physicians. And I, it was not originally intended for physicians, although, you know, we have specific tools and, you know, sub tools that help measure this in medicine specifically. But I think a lot of people, when they hear those, those descriptors about, you know, not caring as much as you know they used to, or they feel like they should, or not feeling like they've accomplished much, even though they have, or, you know, compartmentalizing their work life because it's not what they dreamed it would be. Like when you when you describe it that way, I think that a lot of people inside and outside of medicine can really relate. The thing that's unique about medicine is that the numbers are prolific. And so, you know, whereas, you know, burnout might happen, you know, a, a per, proportion of the time in the general public and other jobs, almost 50% of doctors are burned out and a doctor a day dies by suicide. We have the highest rate of suicide of, you know, pretty much any profession. And so, you know, we, we, we are on par with, you know, PTSD soldiers, which is insane, right? And so I do think burnout is 100% applicable to you know, a whole variety of, of fields and jobs and occupations. I do think that it is out of proportion in medicine. I want to come back and talk about the numbers in a minute, but there's a theme that runs throughout your book, Determined, this idea of victim or hero, the choice is ours. It's a theme you talk about often in the book. But it raises a larger question that I think we have to answer before we dive into the specifics, which is, is burnout a reaction to bad external circumstances or is burnout a result of internal problems? Yeah, I think this is probably the most important question to answer in the book because 
there are individual solutions to the phenomenon of burnout. But before you can even cross that bridge, you have to deal with the very offensive idea, which is the word burnout. Because a lot of people, and I can't, you know, my, my world exists in medicine. And so I don't, I don't know if this is true outside of medicine, but in medicine, if you use the term burnout or the term resilience, that implies that it is the person's fault that they are the way that they are. And it's actually a really inflammatory and offensive world word in a lot of in a lot of circles. And so some prefer the term moral injury. And moral injury is this idea that you are in an external environment that prevents you from doing the job that you set out to do. In other words, you might have the skills, the training, the knowledge to do what needs to be done, and the system prevents you from doing it. And so you see harm happen to other people because of that system. And so I think there's been this line drawn, this distinction. And I want to say it was Wendy Moore actually that came out with the you know the well known article that that talked about moral injury and how that's a better term than burnout, but but I think it's actually a false dichotomy. I think that they both exist. I think moral injury is the systemic phenomenon of the medical system in our case being fundamentally broken. You know, burnout is the individual phenomenon that happens because of moral injury, and so I think that there's a call, and what the book calls us you know to is to fix both. Right, we need to fix this broken medical system. And the first half of the book outlines what that does. It, it outlines, you know, exactly what the problems are and how that impacts individual physicians. In the second half of the book, once I've kind of gotten people through that, you know, through that terrible kind of terms, you know, terminology. And, and I'm a, you know, as philosophy major as a background, so like, you know, I understand that the importance of defining terms when you're having a conversation. And so, I try to be unequivocally clear about this you know, medicine's broken. The system is broken. It needs to change. It needs to be fixed. And it as, you know, absolutely 100% is the cause of the individual phenomenon of burnout in medicine. That said, we can work on both. We can and should, because the system is going to be a very hard, you know, needle to move. It's a very large, complex machine. And I think it's un. I, th- I think to some extent, it's kind of unethical to leave doctors burned out in that system waiting for the system to change. Like if you, if you place yourself in the original question you asked, like this victim blaming position, like if you describe yourself as a victim of this moral injury, this system, then that means that the only thing that could ever fix it is fixing the system. And if you work in medicine, you very much feel how big of a machine and how challenging this thing is to change. And so that becomes rather hopeless pretty quickly. Right. And so what if I told you that we do need to fix a system, but there are actually individual things that we can do in the meantime to help you out until that system is fixed. And why not do both if that's the truth? Let's talk a moment about fixing ourselves. Both you and I thought we had the solution earlier on in our careers. And both of, I believe you and I found that wasn't so. What did you think originally was going to fix your quote unquote burnout or even moral injury issue? Yeah, so it was money. It was it was absolutely and fundamentally financial independence, you know, retire early, the fire community. I dove into that and actually on the physician philosopher, the tagline for a really long time was, you know, fight burnout with financial independence. And so like I, I very much, you know, was open about the fact that I thought that money was the answer to the individual phenomenon of burnout. I started burning out myself. So I actually started the blog, started the business, and was, you know, kind of had that mantra connecting, you know money and wellness from the very beginning. And ironically, I ended up burning out myself later. Like I was doing it for other people at that point, but then two years in, I was burning out myself, both from the physician side and the entrepreneur side. So I was like burning the candle at both ends. So what ended up 
turning out to be like, you know, I said, okay, well, I'm burning out. Well, I teach people that you should fight burnout with financial independence. And so naturally, what did I do? I doubled down and I started growing my business. I built a, you know, multi six figure business and got to the point where like, I honestly, if I did my business full time, I could step away from medicine and it didn't solve the problem. <laughs> like I, I just, I was still burned out. And what it actually did is it highlighted other problems that I had that other people don't have to face until they retire. Right. And so I started having to deal with like, what is my purpose? If I step away from my identity in medicine, and I know that you and I share you know, a lot of commonalities in this journey, but I, I had to start dealing with those questions in my mid thirties, whereas most people in medicine deal with it when they're like 60 or 65 or 70 and retiring and what's next. I don't know. In some ways I felt like I was facing just my, my mortality and like, you know, what is the point of all of this? But yeah, money wasn't the answer. And in fact, when I got the answer, when I created that financial freedom through my business and the cash flow that was coming in through that, I found out very quickly it actually caused more problems. And so, so yeah, it, it, it was the initial answer, but it was not, not to be in the end. We're going to get to some of those solutions, but before we do, I want to look at the systemic problem and specifically how it relates to physicians. And you threw out some numbers before you said 50% of physicians are burned out. Physician suicide is probably one of the fields in which suicide is most common. This is a money show. Let's talk about the economic consequences. What are the economic consequences of healthcare burnout today? Yeah, they're unfortunately massive. So if you look at the projections, the number is somewhere around $5 billion with a B in terms of the economic cost of burnout. And they've actually done work to, to kind of look at you know, how much it costs per, per physician. And it's about, you know, about $7,000, give or take. You know, and so it's, and you kind of wonder where those numbers come from. And at the end of the day, you know, the, one of the biggest reasons for those numbers and how they measure it is how much does it cost to replace a physician when they leave? And so if you have your hospital and, you know, whatever county city that you're in right now, and you have a doctor who is a, you know, cardiothoracic surgeon. Now, if you're at a big hospital like mine, we have four, three, four, you know, if you're in a, you know, smaller hospital, you might have one, right? And, and when that one cardiothoracic surgeon leaves, you now have to replace them and recruit somebody to your neck of the woods. And that's going to cost a lot of money. And so, you know, some people say it's on average, you know, two to three times their income. There are other estimates that, you know, kind of give a broad range when you include physicians as a whole. And that number ranges between about half a million to a million dollars per doctor to replace them. So when one doctor leaves an institution, it is going to cost that institution $500,000 to a million dollars to replace them because they lose all of the patients that were being referred in their network. They, they lose all of the current cases that were scheduled. They lose all of the, you know, kind of patients that that person had in the past and having to kind of re-recruit those patients back into their system. And so it's a very expensive thing in medicine when a doctor leaves. And unfortunately, one of the most common reasons that doctors leave their practice is because they're burned out, they're dissatisfied, they're unhappy. There's a whole variety of, of words people might use, but at the end of the day, they, they are not satisfied in their career. And so you know, it's very, very costly from an economic standpoint. So why is it so common for physicians to face burnout? You talked yourself about some of your achievement issues and you use the term arrival fallacy. Can you talk to us a little bit about what that means and, and why it makes us as physicians very prone to go through this process? Yeah, I think this is someone something that a lot of people can relate to. But yeah, and I'll explain, like you're saying, why it's kind of unique to physicians, why it hits us so hard. 
But the idea of an arrival fallacy was coined by Tal Ben-Shahar. And the idea is this, basically that when you get there, whatever that might be, an accomplishment, an award, uh, a point in your career, like whatever you define as that moment that once you get there, you're going to be happy. So this is the arrival. When you arrive, I'm going to be happy. Things are going to be better. And so the typical journey of, of a doctor is, you know, you finish high school and you look forward to undergrad and you're like, oh, when I get to undergrad, I'm out of the parents' house. It's going to be better. You get to college. And then you're like, oh, well, when I get to medical school, you know, I'm going to be trained to be a physician. So it's going to be even better. And then medical school is really hard and you have to take all these exams and your life is learning the art and science of medicine. And then you're like, well, when I become a resident physician, like at least I'll be a doctor. So it's going to be better because I'm not going to have the short white coat anymore. Like people will actually respect me. And then you get to residency and it turns out this thing's a slog and you're working 80 to 100 hours a week and you experience for most people, their first bout of burnout while they're in training. And they're like, you know what, but what's going to make this worth it is when I get to become an attending physician, I make attending physician money. And then they finally get to the end of that road. And like, they keep telling themselves that the next thing is going to be what makes them happy. And every time they get to that next stage, it does, it gives them a little bit, of, you know, a little hit of dopamine, maybe some serotonin in there for a few months, but then they adapt, they adjust, you know, just like the idea of the hedonic treadmill that I know, you know, you like to talk about and, and we adapt. That's what we do. We're human. And so then you become an attending physician and there, there maybe there's a next step. You might make partner, you might get promoted, but at the end of the day, like that's, that's finally in your mid thirties, your early thirties, when you start to like get to the end of the arrivals and you realize this is it and you're still burned out, you're still not happy. And so you buy the car, you buy the house. This is why doctors are well known for, you know, succumbing to, you know, lifestyle inflation and, and, the, and the cost that that has in our life and why we don't often achieve, you know, financial independence despite earning lots of money. And, and all of that is in an attempt to find this happiness that just seems to elude us the entire, the entire way. And the reason this uniquely kind of impacts physicians is because the journey is so long. There are guardrails on in medicine that you know exactly what the next step is for like, you know, your entire life, basically until you're 30 and all of a sudden you're 30 and like the guardrails are off. You can do whatever you want with your life. And now there's no one telling us what the next step is. Where do we, where are we supposed to go? What are we supposed to do? How are we supposed to make this thing our own in general? And so because it's such a long, you know, and prolonged thing, it really hits us pretty hard at the end of that because we've sacrificed our entire twenties to become a physician and missed out on weddings and funerals and, you know, play time with our kids and maybe getting married and, and delaying all of those things that everyone else is doing to get to this thing that's supposed to be worth it. And then we find out that it's not, it's a pretty devastating outcome in the end. I want to flip the conversation in order to better look at the systemic problems in order to magnify them. Let's look at the opposite, what good looks like. Yep. So in the book, you make the argument that what good looks like is a self-determined physician. Tell us about the ABCs of being a self-determined physician, and then we're going to move back over to why it's so hard to achieve those in today's healthcare environment. Yeah. So this actually comes from the research by Edward DC and Richard Ryan. So it's something called self-determination theory. And, and they, they have three tenets. You know, they started describing this in the 70s and 80s, and then the research in 2000 kind of solidified things as they created these three components. And they are autonomy. The second is what they call relatedness. But you know, I'm a philosophy major, so I like terms. So I, I like calling it belonging because it makes more sense to me. And then competence. So autonomy, belonging, and competence. And the way that you can think about this, and I think that you aptly described it in the introduction to the show, right, is that you know, autonomy is the idea that you get to control your life. And we all want it. And in the book, I you know, I tell a story about my my little girl who's you know brushing her teeth and 
you know, she always used to say when she was four, I want to do it by my own big girl self. Like she had no interest in me helping her with anything. Like she's putting the shoes on the wrong feet. She's, you know, you know, brushing half her teeth, but not the other half. She's, you know, got, you know, tangles in her, you know, hair, hair, and I'm just trying to braid them. And but what Anna Ruth knows, even at the age of 40, or excuse me, at the age of four, is that, that a lot of us learn when we're 40, is that she wants to do it by herself. She wants autonomy. She wants control over her life. And so what does that look like from, from a workplace standpoint? Well, autonomy can be broken down into a couple of things, your personal autonomy and your professional autonomy. So personal autonomy means you control when you get home. You have control of your schedule. You're able to make the t-ball games and the gymnastics practice, right? Professional autonomy means that you can practice you know, whatever your craft is how you want to practice it, when you want to practice it, where you want to practice it, right? So th- these are the ideas of, of autonomy and sandwiched in between the personal and professional autonomy is the, the golden egg that everybody wants in life, which is work-life balance, right? This is the term that everybody throws around and ultimately comes from having control of both your personal life and your professional life. So that's autonomy. Belonging, which is the second component, is composed of a couple of things as well. So this is the idea of feeling like you are a valued member of the team. So when you have concerns, your boss, your chair, your whoever hears them, right? When they, when you have a suggestion, it's actually considered you are an integral part of what makes this team successful. And you feel that way. You feel like you belong, but that's not enough because you can be on a team in an office, you know, working a desk job and you're working for a company that you just don't like, you don't really support in terms of their, their mission. Like you're just doing it to pay the bills. So belonging also means that you're not only on this team and feel like a valued member of it, but that the team is accomplishing something that's bigger than the team itself. You have a shared, deeper purpose. And so those are the two components of belonging and competence comes down to, you know, really not only how good are you, what you do, but how good are you, what you think you do, right? Like how, like your thoughts about your competence, your perceived confidence, if you will. We, we see it all the time in medicine with a massive number of people suffering from imposter syndrome that it turns out you can be really good at what you do and still think you're terrible at it, right? Still think you're a fraud. So it really comes down to these three determinants. And when you have autonomy, belonging, and competence, that's when people have that work-life balance. That's when they feel engaged, satisfied, fulfilled at work. They love what they do. And not only do they love what they do, but they're really good at it too. And so when you have all three of those things, those three components, DC and Ryan, autonomy, belonging, competence, they would say, that's what you need in order to love your job. And if you don't love your job, I would argue that you're missing one of those, one of those three key components of self-determination theory. Now, arguably, there are lots of reasons why systemically healthcare today makes it very difficult for physicians to reach the ABCs. In the book, one of the things you talk about is the healthcare culture continuum. And I'm going to quote you here, whether they realize it or not, each healthcare organization has a choice. With each decision our leaders make, they're either focusing on people or they're focusing on profit. Let's talk about profits before people, because I think it's a big part of the system that hurts physicians. What's going on there? Describe that continuum. Yeah. So on one end, you have the self-determined physician or the self-determined employee, because I think that these concepts definitely apply to medicine and to literally every other job. And on the other side, you've got the burned out employee. And so your, your boss, your organization, healthcare in this situation that we're talking about, has the choice whether they're going to force you towards one ideal or the other. And typically the way that this happens in medicine is that you either focus on profit, which leads to burnout, or you focus on people which leads to this idea of self-determination and allowing your employees to determine for themselves the career that they want, how they want to do it, and while they accomplish your goals. 
because you have a shared purpose, right? And so I want to be, I want to be clear about this though, because, you know, as we have this conversation, it's very, very easy. And I see this happen a lot in medicine and I see it happen a lot outside of medicine too, where people blame the people that are in charge and they're like, oh, these terrible administrators, like, you know, the, the number crunchers upstairs, you know, they, they I'm just a cog in the wheel. I'm a number on a balance sheet. Like I, I don't matter to them. And it, it's really a lot deeper than that. So the people that are in charge of these organizations, if you've ever been, you know, in charge of an organization or a business yourself, you know, that profit is what keeps the lights on. And so a lot of these people will say, Hey, you know, I, I hear what you're saying. I want to take care of my people, but if I can't pay the bills, then none of them have a job. And so they focus primarily on profit in hopes that they can keep the business healthy and then take care of their people. And unfortunately, what happens from this place, if, if that's your primary outcome, that's the primary objective that you have as a business, then you make really tough decisions that start to strip these ABCs of self-determination away from people. And so when you, know, you have certain stipulations you have to make, or you have certain you know, decisions you have to make, oh, well, if I invest in this, it's going you know, to clearly go in the expense column. And so, you know, that's going to lower our profit. And so we're not going to do that, even though we know that that one tool or system would help our employees. And so that's fundamentally different from recognizing that when you focus on your people, your people are going to take care of your customers in healthcare. We call that patients, right? The patients are going to be happy. They're going to refer those, you know, other friends that they have to the same hospital because they got great care, right? So when you focus on the employee and the employee takes care of the customer and the customer is happy, the customer continues to come back. They continue to pay the bills. Right. That ultimately makes the business money, which makes the C suite happy, the board of directors, all the rest of it. And so the question quintessentially in business has always been like, who do you focus on? Like, it, who do you make happy? Is it the board of directors? Is it the C suite? Is it the employee? Is it the customer? And I bet most people coming into the show, if I'd asked you, like, which of those four things do you, you think as a business owner you should focus on? They'd be like, oh, the customer. Like, the customers, you know, we should always make the customer happy. The customer is always right. Like, we have these sayings that we hear all the time in businesses, right? But it turns out that when you do that, which is what profit-focused corporations do, they're like, oh, we're going to focus on patient satisfaction. We're going to focus on patient pain scores. We're going to focus on you know, all of these other things. What you end up doing is driving your employees into the ground, chasing something that isn't directly going to affect things the way that you think that they will. And ultimately, what happens is that the employees, because they're jumping through all these hoops that you've set, get burned out and they leave. And that costs you a lot more money then you can possibly realize and that that burnout culture causes the turnover. The turnover actually leads to less profit. So when people focus on profits or companies focus on profit, ironically, they actually end up losing a lot of profit in the end. We are talking to Jimmy Turner. He is a practicing anesthesiologist and life career and money coach for doctors who are burned out and want work-life balance. We're going to take a short break. I'm Doc G, and this is the Earn and Invest Podcast. You know what? I love our meals from Factor. My son started getting them about a year ago when he needed a quick alternative to meals on the go. But where we've really enjoyed them is we've been remodeling our kitchen. That's right. We've had no access to our kitchen for the last few weeks. And some nights, we just had no idea what to do for a meal. That is where Factor came in. We would just pop the meal in the microwave, and two minutes later, we'd have a fantastic meal. You can do the exact same thing, and there's tons of variety. Choose from a weekly menu of 35 options, including calorie smart, keto, protein plus, or vegan and veggie. 
Also, discover more than 60 add-ons every week. These are chef-prepared meals, and let me tell you, they are delicious. No fuss, no mess. You just put it in the microwave, and two minutes later, you have a meal. This is tailored to your schedule. You can customize your weekly meals with the flexibility to get as much or as little as you need. Head to factormeals.com slash earn50 and use your code earn50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box. That's code earn50 at factormeals.com slash earn50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. Hey everybody, this is Doc G. We are two weeks away from my book, Taking Stock, launching on Amazon August 2nd. We now have both a paperback version, a Kindle version, and Audible's version is coming out. It is now available for pre-order. Check it out. You can go to earnandinvest.com slash pre-orders. Again, that's earnandinvest.com slash pre-orders. And you can see both the Kindle version, the paperback version, and the Audible version. I hope you'll check it out. This really is a culmination of all we talk about here on the Earn and Invest podcast, as well as all the personal finance, blogging, and public speaking I've been doing for years. It's about what my hospice patients at the end of life have helped teach me about money and how we can live a regret-free life. I really hope you check it out and enjoy it. Now back to the show. Let me reintroduce you. We are talking to Jimmy Turner. He is the author of Determined, How Burned Out Doctors Can Thrive in a Broken Medical System, which will be out later this summer. Jimmy, up to this point, we've really been talking about the system and what goes wrong with the system. Let's move towards people. In this case, we're talking doctors. One of the problems that you go into quite a bit of detail talking about is learned helplessness. What is learned helplessness? How does that become the norm for physicians and how does it affect their sense of burnout? I love talking about this because I think it's something people can really relate to, but originally it's Martin Seligman's research. And he actually did this research on German shepherds, which makes me really sad, by the way, because I have a German shepherd. (laughs) We're, We're actually getting a second one soon. Yeah. So what, what Seligman did was basically he took three groups of dogs. And I think this is the best way to explain it is the research itself. Cause it, it's just, it's just such, it's really good and sad, <laughs> but it's good. So three groups of dogs, and they basically put this harness on the dogs that would shock them in the first group. They just tossed them into Seligman's box. He just had this box for these German shepherds and he then just released them. This was the control group. The second group, he put them in the box and then when they were in the box, he shocked them. But in the box, there was a lever. And if the dogs pressed the lever with their paw, it would stop them from getting shocked. And so the group three, they put them in the same box, had the same lever, but the lever was broken this time. And so those dogs got shocked and they could pound on that lever as much as they possibly wanted, but they would just continue to get shocked. And so this, the really interesting thing is what was learned in part one of the experiment was then applied to part two. And so they put them in a, a different box. And this time the box didn't have a lever in it, but what it had is a small partition, a little you know, divider in between two halves of the box. And they put them in the first half, all three dogs wearing the harness, they'd get shocked in that first half of the box. But if they just jumped over to the partition, this little low barrier, you know, as a German shepherd, easily could jump over it, go to the other side of the box. If they went to the other side of the box, they would stop getting shocked. Well, group one got in and they didn't like getting shocked and they'd never been shocked before. So they're like, what am I going to do about this? And they jumped to the other side. In group two, 
they learned again that the lever worked in the first half of the experiment. So they learned that they could do something about their shocks. And so they tried looking for solutions and they would jump over to the other side of the box too. Group three, who learned that the lever was broken in the first half of the experiment and who learned that there's nothing that they can do about the shock. Two thirds of the dogs in that group just laid down and kept getting shocked, which is insane. This is called learned helplessness. It's what happens when you are in a situation where you've tried to get out of it before and you've just kind of learned there's nothing that you can do. And two thirds of the time, at least for these German shepherds, they would just lay down and keep getting shocked, even though they could simply jump over the other side. And they, they ran variations of the experiment, like where they, you know, take that same group of dogs, group three dogs, and actually, you know, get them to watch the group one and group two dogs and see that they would stop getting shocked. They would provide rewards and, you know, punishments to try to see if they could decondition this response to some extent. And, and it turned out that they weren't very effective. That once you learned, learned helplessness, that you couldn't do anything about your situation, you would be kind of stuck. And this is what happens a lot in life. You know, if you think about friends you know who have been in abusive relationships, this is the phenomenon that causes people to stay in abusive relationships. When from the outside perspective, it makes no sense. We're like, why don't you just help yourself? Why don't you do something? Why don't you get out of there? Right. It's the same thing that happens to people when they're burned out and working in an organization and they're dependent on their paycheck and they've tried to make changes. They've suggested, you know, suggested, you know, things that could be different and they just keep getting ignored. And eventually you just stop suggesting things. And so you come into a meeting and everyone's silent and the leader of the meeting thinks that, you know, everyone agrees because they're silent. And really what it is, is just a bunch of learned helplessness where people have learned that they've spoken up in the past and nothing's ever happened. And so they just lay down and keep getting shocked like the German shepherds did in Seligman's experiment. And so this, this idea of learned helplessness is fundamentally important in this conversation because you have to understand first that you may suffer from that and that you're not as helpless as you think you are. It's an interesting point because I feel like learned helplessness causes us to alter the stories we tell ourselves about our situation. And I believe you call this a cognitive distortion. Tell me about some of the cognitive distortions physicians tell themselves. Yeah. So, you know, there, there are cognitive distortions and there are a variety of them. And so I, I discuss some of them in the book. And so, you know, one of them is, is overgeneralization. And, and I try to give stories from my own life. So people think that I'm not, you know, poking at them, but overgeneralization is the idea that when something happens in your life, you take the, the, that single instance and make it mean something about who you are as a whole. And so for me, like one of the quintessential examples that I give in the book is, is when I was an intern and I was actually on my emergency medicine rotation and when you know patients are not doing well, we put central lines, you know, in them to get large access, you know, to to put medications in or fluid if you if you know you're sick or if you're bleeding, you know, this is ways that we we can pump medication and fluids into patients very very quickly, right? And so I, I growing up in you know medical school, like watching people do this procedure, and it seemed like a really big deal, and I made it out to be this like quintessential like procedure that in order to be a good anesthesiologist, you just had to be able to like put a line in in like five seconds. And if you couldn't do that, then you were terrible at your job. And so I'm on my intern rotation. I get the opportunity to put my first central line in ever. And it's on this lady. She's, you know, super sick. She's septic. Her, her INR is four, which means that her, her blood is very, very thin. And so my upper level resident says, Hey, you know, do you want to, do you want to do central? Line? I stay like two or three hours after my shifts end. my shift ends to learn how to do this. Right. And we end up doing ephemeral because femoral central line in the legs, because the, the neck where you'd normally put it didn't look great. And I'm doing the procedure and it's going okay until the point where like, you're supposed to take the wire out that you kind of have in the entire time to kind of guide where everything goes. 
And you're, at the end, you're supposed to take this metal wire out because you no longer need it because the central line's in place. And, and when I went to take the central line wire out, that you know guide wire, I took everything out. And so now this patient had a very large hole in her you know femoral vein that I just caused and her blood's thin. So she starts having this massive bruise, this hematoma. And my upper level looks at me and says, well, I guess you'll never do that again. <laughs> Hold pressure. I'll put my gown on. And like, I'm like mortified. Like I just spent 20 minutes putting this thing in and I ripped everything out accidentally. And so I went home and like for, for hours, like I literally, I, it was after midnight. I didn't like, I didn't sleep for three or four hours. It was like three or four in the morning till I could finally fall asleep because I made this into such a big deal. I overgeneralized this single instance of me making a mistake, putting my first central line in to mean that I was a bad doctor, that I was a bad resident. I was going to be a terrible anesthesiologist. And so I overgeneralized this one situation into my identity. And, and I think this is one that's really common, particularly with negative events, right? So we get a bad you know, patient review or, you know, customer review. If you work outside of medicine, you get, you know, you have a bad outcome in a patient and you can overgeneralize any of those instances into meaning that you're not good at what you do. And this has a massive attack on your, your competence, right? It's a, it's a direct affront on one of those three tenets of self-determination. Cause you feel like I'm not good at what I do. And it really causes a lot of imposter syndrome, you know, this idea that you're a fraud and that like, you're just waiting for someone to catch you. And so, you know, I think that that's one of the most common ones when we take a bad patient review, we take a bad outcome, we take, a, you know, an unfortunate circumstance or something that happened instead of saying, hey, I'm going to learn from this. Like we, we just turn it into this unadulterated shame that consumes who we are and it, it makes it about, you know, our identity. As you were telling that story, it reminds me that you spend some time talking about the difference between guilt and shame. And it seems like these cognitive distortions really push us from something that might have some positive effects, a little bit of guilt about doing something you think is wrong and maybe improving because of it versus shame, which is a whole different story. What, what's the difference between the two? Yeah. So I think Brene Brown, who is a well-known author and researcher when it comes to shame, explains this best. And, and the way that she basically explains it, if I'm, I can paraphrase her, is that you know guilt is I did something bad, whereas shame is I am bad. And so the difference being that guilt when you feel guilty, like, you know, if I say something to you and I'm like, you know, Hey George, ah, gosh, you know, I shouldn't have said that. And then I apologize, right. That that's driven from guilt. That's driven from like, Oh, I made a mistake. I need to rectify it. I need to make this right. Whereas shame is, you know, I, I, I said something to you that I shouldn't have said. And now I'm just a terrible human being for having said that. Now I'm going to go wallow in my, my, my pity and my shame and, and just turn this into something that, you know, is way more than it is. And so for, for the way that we explain this in coaching, is basically that there are negative emotions in our life that actually produce massively positive results, right? So the most common one being stress or anxiety, right? The first time I got behind this microphone on this pot, this very podcast, right? I was so nervous. I was worried about how it's going to go and like, you know, how it's going to be. And like, like, well, I don't know, four or five years later, however long it's been, you know, I have a podcast of my own. And so like, if I wasn't willing to go through that anxiety or that nervousness, like I would never have landed where I did now. And so we realized that there are a lot of, you know, emotions that we need to coexist with in life. And that actually our success is on the other side of that negative emotion. Whereas there are other emotions in life called indulgent emotions. And these are emotions that don't produce anything positive. They're just a circular pattern of, you know, so my central line story, I'm a terrible doctor. I can't put a central line in, right? I feel shame. And then I think about all the examples of ways that I'm a terrible doctor, right? Which makes me feel more shame. And then I just keep going through that cycle. And so that's called an indulgent emotion. Other emotions that fit that category would be overwhelm or worry. And so these are things that don't produce positive results. So when it comes to guilt and shame, guilt 
is I did something bad. It's external. It gives the opportunity to improve from that experience. Whereas shame is internal about who you are based on this one event. And it is indulgent and almost never productive. I, I would like to say never, but I, I try not to, to speak in you know, too much hyperbole, but almost never helpful. So let me put you on the spot and ask you to solve all our problems with one question. You know, so we've talked about profits ahead of people, which puts us in this system that is very hard on physicians. We've talked about the fact that we take the world onto our shoulders, develop these cognitive distortions, which cause shame more than a healthy sense of negative emotions, which we then can improve on. So what's the first step? Like, how the heck do we go from all that? to striving towards that self-determined physician who has a sense of autonomy, belonging, competence? Like, how do we flip that switch? Yeah. So I think if, you know, I had to make it a step-by-step process, right? It would be recognizing that labeling yourself as a victim provides whatever you're a victim from all of the power. So in this situation, if we're talking about the system, which is broken and you're the victim of that system, until that system gets fixed, you can't get fixed either, right? So the first step is realizing that you don't have to be the victim of your story. You can be the hero of it, that you have more power than you could ever realize. I think the second is realizing kind of along that same vein that you're not helpless, that there actually are things that you can do. And then the, the third and you know pivotal piece is realizing the perspective or the paradigm, the narrative that you have about your situation is up to you, right? And so for 2000 years, we, we know from you know Stoic philosophy and a whole host of other people and examples that have existed that you can be in a really terrible situation and still decide to have a positive perspective about it and still decide not to be the victim of it, right? And so you know, you can think of classic examples of this, right? Like, you know, Victor Frankl, who, you know, the man search for meaning, you know, who was in a concentration camp and that entire book basically outlines the fact that like, because he had a narrative that his life still had purpose, he didn't die, right? This is a psychiatrist, German psychiatrist that went through the concentration camps during World War II. And even this person could find some positive narratives or some reason for purpose during such a terrible time. And, and there are countless examples. I give a ton in the book about people that have you know, gone through similar or different, I should say, they, they've gone through different uh, circumstances that were still very, very negative. We're talking about racism. We're talking about being thrown in jail for murder that you didn't commit. And you know, all of these people were able to somehow keep a very different perspective that refused to be labeled a victim, which just causes bitterness, and instead decided to be the hero of their story and to overcome instead of just laying there and getting shocked like the German, you know, the German shepherds from Seligman's experiment. So I think first it's it, it's a step process of, of figuring out I'm not a victim. The second is I'm not as helpless as I think that I am. I have a lot more power than I realize. And the third is to start to work on those perspectives, those stories, those narratives that we tell ourselves, because those narratives are what determine our feelings. It's not our circumstances. It's not the external environment that determines how you feel. It is your narrative about it that determines how you feel. And so when you start realizing, oh, like this, this mindset work, this thought work that people talk about all the time, like it turns out it's really important. And we even we even kind of mentioned this briefly earlier in the show when we talked about finding our life's purpose, right? We had it, you and I both had a narrative that money was the answer to burnout. And it turned out that wasn't true, right? That wasn't a thought that served you or served me. And so we changed our narrative. We changed our perspective and we took a completely different trajectory because of that perspective that we reshaped. 
the book goes into a lot of detail about how we can change the narrative, which is so important from taking these sometimes negative external realities and yet feeling a sense of control internally. I want to end the conversation by talking about two concepts having to do with changing those narratives. The first is self-compassion. You talk about self-compassion as the book comes to a close. Why is this so important in rewriting that story of the situation we're in? Yeah, because I think that along with the victim mentality comes this idea that yeah, that we're broken, that there's something wrong with us. That's, you know, like when you, when you make that shift into realizing that your narrative, your perspective is up to you, you start to also realize like, it's like this double-edged sword, right? You're like, oh, wow, freedom. Like I can change my perspective. And that's what happens to a lot of the clients that we coach. They're like, hey, I'm coming into this program because I'm so burned out and I want to change jobs. I want to find my, my path in medicine or I want to get out of medicine altogether, right? And then they learn that they can reshape their perspective and most of the people end up actually falling back in love with medicine, which is pretty awesome to see because we need doctors, we need nurses, we need medical professionals in these jobs. But the, the flip side to that is that you also realize, wow, if it's my thoughts that determine how I feel, then when I feel like crap, it's because of the thoughts that I have, right? And so you start to have this self-judgment that can happen like, well, if, if I'm in this situation and I can't feel better about it, like it's my fault. And so the work in self-compassion, which is really lacking, there's actually, you know, pretty good evidence at this point that that doctors are not very good at this, but self-compassion for, for those that aren't familiar with the term. So compassion itself, right, means from two terms. So calm and patty means with and suffer. So compassion means to suffer with. Self-compassion means that you are normalizing that, like you are recognizing that you can suffer with yourself. And what that means is you normalize the feelings that you have when things don't go well. It's okay to be sad. It's okay to be upset. It's okay to be, to feel burned out right? And when you have that self-compassion, it allows you that space to learn how to change that narrative while you haven't gotten there yet, right? Because there becomes this world of like the in-between where like, you know, if, if point A is coming in, you know, to, to, to reading this book or listening to this podcast as a completely burned out person in your profession and point B is being elated, satisfied, you know, completely fulfilled in your job. Well, this is, there, it's, it's legitimate work. So like you don't go from point A to point B today. It won't happen in this episode. It won't happen in you know just the single pass through a book. It takes work. And so what do you do when you're in that middle in between territory and things aren't going well, or you know it's a little harder than you thought? Well, you get to have self-compassion. You get to normalize that. You get to talk to yourself the way that you talk to someone else. That's a really helpful practical tip, right? So when you feel yourself just destroying yourself or whatever's going on in your life, just ask yourself, if my situation was happening to my best friend or my spouse, my partner, my kid, whoever, what would I say to them? And have that conversation. Like you can even say it out loud. It might sound feel, feel a little silly at first, but like say it out loud. Like what would I say to you know Doc G if if I had you know if if Doc G was going through this problem? You're going to be infinitely kinder to other people than you are to yourself. That's how a lot of us are wired. Um, and so when you realize, oh, like I actually have the choice to be as kind to myself as I am to other people, you start to understand self compassion a little bit better. And and it's it's such an important concept because you're not going to get this right 100 percent of the time. They're going to be you know, two steps forward, one step back. And when you take that step back, how kind are you when that happens? Um, so that's kind of the work of self-compassion. And it's really, really important. So one of the ways to rewrite the narrative is with self-compassion. The other is with coaching. Can you do it yourself? I mean, you're a coach, so obviously you're very pro-coaching, but I know a lot of doctors out there that said, you know, I'll manage this. I'll take care of it on my own. Tell me about the role of coaching and who may or may not need it. So, you know, 
I guess I will talk about someone specifically from like a physician's perspective, because that's who I work with. There's this narrative in medicine, and, and we literally say this, like, like how I tell me if you ever heard this, Doc G. Asking for help is weak. Yes. Oh, many, many times. Right. So there's this narrative in medicine. And like we even say that, like to our junior, you know, our junior trainees, we're like, hey, you know, call anytime you need, but just realize calling's calling's weak. Right. And and so like we joke about it now, but like the reason we joke about it now is because for a lot of time, like that really was like, like don't call, like call, but don't call, right? Like do it, fix it yourself, do it yourself. And so when it comes to physicians, the biggest mistake, the most common mistake that I see when it comes to reshaping these narratives that we're talking about is that people do try to do it themselves. And there's a reason why like someone comes into my world, they, you know, they hear my voice for the first time on a podcast, they come to some, you know, live training that I'm doing, and then they end up getting coaching six, nine, 12 months down the road. And it's because they try to do it themselves and it doesn't work. That doesn't mean you can't, you know, I'm very pro change people's mindsets. So, you know, if that's going to be with, you know, a trusted counselor, a coach, someone, I think that's probably the best way to do it. And there's a couple of reasons why. One is that, you know, people are like, oh, I'm just going to go have a, you know, I'm gonna go have a beer with a friend and just talk it out. Well, a friend is not the same as a coach, right? Like a friend is someone that you, you want empathy from. You want them to wallow in your self-misery with you. Like you're like, yes, that is terrible. I can't believe that's going, I can't believe she said that, right? Like that's what you want from a friend. That's not what you need from a coach or a counselor who says, hey, by the way, I don't know if you know this or not, but like this perspective that you're a victim, like you keep punching yourself in the face. I'm not going to apologize for you punching yourself in the face. How about we just work on not punching yourself in the face? You know, and and so coaching is is and I would say counseling or you know anything where you're getting advice or mentoring where someone's not taking the road of empathy with you but they're trying to actually help your situation and pointing out where your narratives, your perspectives, your paradigms may be going astray, that maybe where they aren't leading to the results that you want in your life. And so for me like yes, I do think you can do it yourself. I do think you can read self-help books. I think you can you know, spend a lot of time in silence. You can spend a lot of time in, you know, you know, internal thought and dialogue with friends and family. And over, you know, a period of years, you could probably get to, to the same point. Honestly, I I think that that's absolutely true. But for, you know, a lot of people, if you want to speed that up and actually make it happen in a, in a timeframe that you want, you know, when you're talking about taking a 10 year process and making it something that's six months or a year, I think that really does take, you know, kind of an immersive dive into like a very intentional relationship with a counselor or coach, someone that's external to you, an objective third party that's going to hold you accountable. Well, the book is Determined How Burned Out Doctors Can Thrive in a Broken Medical System. Jimmy, I wanted to thank you for coming on to talk about burnout today. Certainly from our conversation, I take the point that to work on ourselves, to deal with burnout or moral injury or the mix of both of them, doesn't take away the fact that there are systemic problems that also need to be addressed. It also doesn't mean there's something innately wrong with you as a person. It means that sometimes we can't control external factors, but we can control the way we think and react to them. This goes way farther than medicine. It goes farther than burnout. I think it goes to life in general. This is how we deal with difficult things. And I think your book very succinctly talks about how it can serve us in medicine, but also serve us in life. I want to end this episode the way I end every episode by asking you what is coming next in your life. And if people want to reach out and learn more, how can they? So first and foremost, tell us about when the book is coming out and where people can find it. Yeah. So this book will be coming out in hopefully July. That's the the plan right now. So the summer of, of 2022, but it should be out in, in July and available for, for purchase then. 
And specifically, if people have questions for you or are interested in coaching, a few questions. One, I guess, is your coaching specifically is for physicians only, but I assume that you have some resources for non-physicians. Yeah. So the the Alpha Coaching Experience or ACE is the coaching program and that is for physicians only. But then what's up next? You know, I actually didn't plan on talking about this on the show, but now that you're asking me this question, right? So I'm actually opening up uh, a program it's called Medical Degree Financial University, which is for anyone. And so the the purpose of that is to work on that money piece. I still think money is a huge piece of this. It's a tool. It's not the the end itself, it's a means to an end. It's not the end itself. And so that is for any medical professional. And, and honestly, anyone in general can, can join that if they like. It's you know personal finance lectures, kind of things up that, that avenue. And what's the best way to access all that great information and courses? Yeah. So you can go to thephysicianphilosopher.com slash MDFU to go to Medical Degree Financial University or to look at the coaching program. You can go to thephysicianphilosopher.com slash ACE. That's A-C-E. This has been the Earn and Invest podcast. On behalf of myself, Doc G, I'd like to thank Jimmy Turner. That's a wrap. So I keep the audio running for just a few minutes as we chat. Um, I really enjoyed the book. I think there's a lot of really good stuff there. Um, And I think it's a quintessential problem today in society. So I think it's a huge problem in medicine. But I think the great resignation was also pointing to this idea that people were not happy with work. And, you know, the part, maybe part that we didn't talk about is just life magnifies all that unhappiness we have at work. So with COVID and all the stress going on, with now new stress about a financial downturn, um, it's magnifying our sense of disconnectedness and loss of control at work and life together. And so I think it just, it all pulls into what we're all kind of communally feeling right now as the world changes, sometimes in ways we can't control. Yeah, no, I, I agree. I, th- I think it's um, it's been really challenging because you know, I, th- I think that it kind of opened up Pandora's box for a lot of people because people weren't leaving before. This is kind of like the status quo. And it's amazing how long you'll just stay in the status quo until there's this really abrupt event that makes you kind of reckon with it. And and I think that, you know, the pandemic did that for a lot of people. They're like, oh, wait, 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 hold on. So I can I can work from home, right? <laughs> and, then, and like they're like, this became an idea that like for, for most people outside of online entrepreneurs, like they actually are like, oh, why do I need to come into the office, right? And and so, yeah, I, I agree. I, I think that these moments in life, um, you know, are, are usually pretty individualized, but because of the pandemic and how it affected everybody, it was kind of a, a massive individual phenomenon that, you know, happened collectively all at the same time. Yeah, yeah, that's a good way of, of describing it. Um, talk to me about your future. I mean, you have developed yourself as an author, as a coach, Tell me about your clinical time. Are you looking to decrease it? I mean, what, what, how much role do you think clinical medicine is going to play in your future? Yeah, so it's a good question. Um, so I actually went part-time in, last July to two days a week in medicine. Um, I'm actually going, I went back this month to three days. Um, and so it, in the interim, I, uh, you know, I kind of struggle on and off with depression. And so, you know, went back on medications for that, like over, it's probably October, November. Um, and, um, and really, I think that the, the background, like the reason, the reason that that was going on is because this bigger question of like, what, like, what am I doing with my life? Yeah, um, yeah. because 
and, and, and like, I think you can understand this. You're probably one of the few people in this world that can understand this. Um, but like pretty much everything that I touch turns to gold. Like I'm successful at whatever I want to do. <laughs> no, I, I don't connect with that. Cause that's not true with me, but well, but like, like but the, I, I think that, that may, may, but seriously, like you, you created, you know, uh, a successful, you know, business yeah, in medicine yeah. in multiple ways. You've been a successful yeah. speaker. You've been a yeah. successful author. You've had this podcast. It got purchased by, you know, got partnered yeah. with someone else. Right. Yeah. And, um, and so like, you've had, like, you can do anything. What do you want to do? Yeah. Yeah. It's tough. And so when I started wrecking, like, like I was getting, I get coaching myself, you know, I think any coach that's worth a lick of salt has a coach. And, um, and like for like six months, the question that I was basically asking myself that I couldn't answer, like, was like, what do I want? Like, it seems like such a simple question, but when you spend the first 30 something years of your life doing what other people expect of you and then making a transition into like, but what do I want? Yeah. You know, like yeah. I had a really hard time answering that because I was so dependent upon other people for like my self-worth and like I needed and that achieve, external validation. And, and achievement. achievement. Yeah. Yeah. The corporate world is like the ocean. It's alluring, but it's also full of deadly creatures that can shred you to pieces. It becomes kind of like a Game of Thrones political arena where everyone's trying to murder you to get your job. My family doesn't come from corporate background, so I didn't have any sort of guidance in that. This is not your typical work podcast. Sometimes you need to be empathetic. And then there are times that you ask for input, but you don't really give a shit. <laughs> Listen to the Ambi Award-nominated podcast, Surfing Corporate. Stretch opportunity. What is this, yoga class? Get out of here. It feels really good to be productive, but a lot of the time it's easier said than done, especially when you need to make time to learn about productivity so you can actually, you know, be productive. But you can start your morning off right and be ready to get stuff done in just a few minutes with the Inc. Productivity Tip of the Day podcast. New episodes drop every weekday, so listen and subscribe to Inc. Productivity Tip of the Day wherever you get your podcasts. That's Inc. Productivity Tip of the Day wherever you get your podcasts.